This is Maxine and the Planets Unknown, a sci-fi audiobook in podcast form. Written by, produced by, and performed by me, Brad Lawrence, uh, still doing it from a tiny little side room of a tiny little Brooklyn apartment uh, during a pandemic with children playing outside and sirens going off in the distance. But still, I thank you for coming back every week to hear a new episode of Maxine's Ongoing Adventures. And so, with no further ado, here we go to the next episode of Maxine, The Planet's Unknown. It's episode 11, chapters 20, 21, and 22. Chapter 20. Maxine was dazzled. Nothing could have prepared her for the crystal forest. What had started off as a few pinkish opaque spikes popping out of the reddish cliffs around the river had, as they climbed deeper into the ravine, turned into towers of translucent rose and white and the occasional amber. They rose meters into the air, most of them perfectly vertical, but some sticking out at odd angles. The crossing prisms splashed rainbows across the stream bed and its rocky banks wherever the mid-afternoon sun found its way into the narrow arroyo. Mid-afternoon? Was that what time it was? Mr. Humphrey stopped his waddle and pulled out his pocket watch. Ten past two, as you'd have it. Had she asked about the time out loud? She remembered wondering, but she didn't remember speaking. Mr. Humphreys looked toward the sky, as if he was taking stock of something. This time of year, the sun should be down a little after seven o'clock. Not that day or night will matter much where we're going. Where were they going? You'll see, very shortly. She knew she hadn't said that out loud. And I think you'll find it very informative, very informative indeed. He started off again, skirting around an outcropping of silvery shards that came up to his shoulder. Maxine followed. The water at her feet was making its way over a landscape that increasingly sloped and plateaued. There were places where the stream had worn little bowls into the rocks, where it would swirl until finding its way over a shallow lip and continuing its path deeper into the gorge. As they descended, the stream began to branch, splitting to disappear down tributaries that she could only see the mouths of. She and Mr. Humphreys continued to follow the main branch of the stream until they eventually came around a bend and found an arched entrance to an underground cavern. All around the mouth of the cavern, crystals grew in an almost frantic chaos of crisscrossing spires. Beyond the entrance, the interior was jet black, too dark to see what they were stepping into. This did not slow Mr. Humphreys down even for a step. He walked right in as sure-footed as anything and clearly assumed that Maxine would follow behind. 
And, after a moment's hesitation, she did. Even as she stepped into the darkness, she had to wonder why she trusted Mr. Humphreys so implicitly. Maxine could hear a small voice deep down somewhere, a voice only she knew to be her own, asking her what she thought she was doing following an impossible apparition around a strange planet. The voice wasn't very loud mostly overridden by whatever impulse had her following the unlikely badger far from her spaceship home and into a hole in the ground in the first place. So quiet, in fact, that it would seem that even Mr. Humphreys couldn't hear it, and he seemed to be hearing pretty much everything else that tumbled through her brain. Another thing she should not be as comfortable with as she seemed to be. But, He was Mr. Humphreys, in a galaxy where she had not felt at ease or at home since the death of her family. He had been her place of comfort. In the world he lived in, the world she visited in her mind whenever she escaped into the Selena Simon books, she finally felt like she could let her guard down, like no one was watching, waiting expecting. Maybe he was home. Maybe he had been what she had hoped to find here all along. The light from the outside world disappeared almost immediately inside the cave. The shift was so quick that it kind of made Maxine's head swim a bit. She reached out and put her hand on a crystal to steady herself. She also couldn't hear Mr. Humphreys anymore. When the sound of her own feet came to a stop, then all sound came to a stop. Suddenly, it was total silence, and she suddenly felt like she was totally alone. Alone, in the dark, on a foreign world. Mr. Mr. Humphreys? Then... Maxine felt something inch its way onto her hand. She withdrew it quickly and clutched it to herself. Now she was alone in the dark with something alive and she was afraid to touch anything. Right then, she knew she needed to get out of there immediately. Whether it was because she didn't know what was in there with her or because she was just going to have a straight up panic attack or both. She couldn't say and it really didn't matter. But where was out? She hadn't gone more than a few paces into the cave, had she? She should be able to just turn around and see the entrance, but she didn't. She couldn't She couldn't even tell if, if she had turned around. Mr. Humphreys! Then there was a flicker off to her left. The flicker was followed by a swell of cool white light. She turned towards it, and there, on the crystal which she had braced her hand against, was a small glowing worm. The light was coming from inside the worm, escaping from two parallel lines that ran up its body. As Maxine watched, those two lines twisted and pushed until a couple of small wings emerged. As they did so, the light got brighter. The wings stopped long before they would be big enough to 
actually carry the little fellow aloft, and Maxine suspected that that was never their purpose in the first place. This was what they did. This astonishing cold light was what they were for. And then, as if in response, the entire cave lit up. There were worms all over the walls and the ceiling, and especially towards the tops of the crystal structures. There were thousands of them. As they all opened up their glow wings and surged to what had to be their full brightness, their light caught the crystals around her, seeming to be absorbed and redoubled before being refracted around the chamber, scattering the luminescence everywhere. Maxine was pinned to the spot. Well now, I think that's quite helpful, don't you, Miss Maxine? Maxine stared down at Mr. Humphreys, who she would have sworn had not been standing there next to her just seconds before. Mr. Humphreys smiled up at her, then he turned back toward the stream bed, which was wandering down a steady incline deeper and deeper under the planet's surface. As if cued by his gaze, the walls lit up ahead of them, lighting a path that disappeared around a bend clearly visible several meters ahead. Ah, yes, Mr. Humphreys said. That would be the way, then. Once again, the badger started out ahead of her and Maxine followed. Chapter 21. Sumner stood up carefully, one hand braced against the tree that had ended his downhill roll. Many thorny tangles of knotted vines and roots had tried to do the job the tree had finally succeeded in. He was scratched and bleeding, certain body parts had been twisted almost to their breaking point, and he had taken the tree mainly in his ribs. But, as he tentatively took a deep breath, he felt no sharp stabs. He was bruised, sure to be black and blue up and down his left flank, but no ribs had been broken. He looked back up the overgrown slope he had just tumbled down. He was waiting for a front of gnashing teeth and tiny claws to come rolling down on top of him, carried on a wave of tawny fur. But so far, it would seem his suicidal escape plan had actually done the job. He turned back toward the rest of the slope still ahead of him. He could hear the stream below, still headed in the right direction, he supposed. A small swell of panic hit him, and he pounded his pockets until he found his device. The swell subsided, and he let himself breathe again. In all of that, he had not lost the thing. He could not imagine what he would do if this whole thing had suddenly come down to finding Maxine with nothing to go on besides that she was probably on the planet somewhere. Maybe somewhere kind of west. He opened up the nanny app and found Maxine's dot the only dot on the screen besides the one that indicated his own position. He oriented himself towards her, checked the terrain around him, found what 
might be a way of picking his path down to the water. Hell, if he was wrong and there was no path, he'd just fling himself down the hill again. It had worked the first time he tried it. Then he looked back at the screen and Maxine's dot disappeared. Shit! He shook the device and then looked at the screen in disbelief. Nothing. Just him there, pulsing in quickly diminishing hope. He stared at it, as if he could will it to bring his daughter back. It wasn't happening. Shit! He looked around, as if there would be help coming from somewhere. There wouldn't be. He was alone. He breathed deep, calming himself in spite of the deep pain in his side. He scrolled the device back a couple of seconds and had it drop a pin in the last spot where Maxine had been detected. He would go there and hopefully, whatever he found there, would tell him where to go next. That's all he could hope for. He started picking his way toward the downward path he had plotted out. He would hurry, but he would go steady and careful. He was not going to be dictated to by fear or foolishness. Maxine was smart. Maxine was resourceful. He didn't know what the loss of the signal meant, but if she were... If she were dead, it would still be transmitting, so it didn't mean that. He had just started to make headway when something hit him on the shoulder from directly above. It was hard, and while it hadn't injured him, it had smarted a bit too much for him to just ignore it. He looked down. What he found there was a tiny blue and orange ball with a texture that alternated between dimpled and glassy smooth. Then the thing sprouted legs and little searching digits and started to crawl away. It was a bug of some kind. Something, someone, had thrown a bug at him. Then... Another one barely missed his head. He felt it zip past his ear on a straight downward trajectory. This one was bigger than the last, and it gave a short little bounce when it landed. Then after a second, it also started to crawl away. Sumner looked skyward. He couldn't quite believe what he saw at first. Above him, floating on some air current he could not even feel, was a spiral of blue and orange sails. Each sail was attached to one of these little insects who had the hard shell that had just left a knotty bruise on his right shoulder. But in the air, the shell was opened up, splayed apart to give room to the membrane that were keeping these little things aloft. It was, well, it was beautiful. Then the one that was highest on the thermal spiral they all seemed to be riding got to a point just above Sumner and closed up, turning itself into a rock that was now falling out of the sky right at Sumner's face. The sheriff sidestepped with relative ease and the beetle bounced off the forest floor and away into the underbrush. Was, was that on purpose? Sumner looked back up and saw that the column of floating bugs was thicker at the bottom than it was at the apex. In fact, in the time it had taken him to track the last one's fall, three more had begun their descent. He sidestepped one, then a second, then one hit his wrist. He shook out the smarting little spot in his hand, 
Then another hit him in the back. Then they were coming out of the sky in fours and fives. Then one hit him on the forehead right above the eye, and he felt a small gash open up. Ow! God damn it! Then he was in a hailstorm of insects, and all thought of carefully picking his way down the slope was lost as he started to hop and high-step and jump over underbrush and roots as he tried to get out of the target zone. But as he went, they seemed to adjust their flight path. This was on purpose. What in the hell was wrong with this planet? Was everything on here trying to kill them? That was the last thought he had before a vine seemed to wrap itself around his ankle and trip him, sending him careening ass over tit down the hill. Chapter 22 There was a moment when they were making their way through the cave when Maxine felt suddenly overwhelmed by the wonder of it all. Her life up until that point had not been boring. A lot had gone on. But it had been sequestered. She'd seen the same things every day, the same people, the same very tightly controlled environment. Most people in the final generation of a century ship's journey found themselves treating everything before planetfall as a kind of prologue. Whatever they were doing was what they were doing before they started doing the truly important thing of building a brand new civilization on a distant planet. The intensity of this feeling might fluctuate depending on how old a given person might be, what stage of life they would be in when the eventual arrival actually occurred. But everyone who could reasonably anticipate being alive when it happened found themselves unconsciously dividing their life into before and after, often well before anything had occurred for there to be an after of. That thought had kind of gotten away from her. But... Maxine was conscious that she had already had a before and after experience. This had led her to treat Planetfall as a bit of an addendum. She'd had her own hopes and ideas about what life on Oxalus would be like, but whatever it was, it would most of all simply be a continuation of her life without her family. But now... Having traipsed through a real live forest and now wandering through this cave lined with giant crystals, her way lit by glowing winged worms who seemed to have been summoned by the hero of her favorite children's book, she was beginning to come around to the realization that this was a significant change in its own right. This was not just getting out and having an adventure because she didn't want to be trapped on the ship, not feeling the way everyone else was feeling. This was a new world, a literal and awe-inspiring new world. And that could mean almost anything. Almost. That word hung in her mind, the way all of the irretrievable losses of her life always hung in her mind. Until the very next moment, 
when all established expectations were wiped from her brain completely. The first thing she noticed was how hard it was to look at the light. Before her, the cave opened up into an enormous cavern. The space was not as big as the habitation bay of the Contiki, but after being in the narrow passages for so long, it certainly felt like it was. And it was lit up. To her left, as she entered the space, Maxine saw an enormous earthen mound that stretched from the floor of the cavern to the ceiling. It had been built, and it had clearly been built, as there were tiny passages in and out in an ordered hive-like pattern, using surrounding crystal spires, the largest she had yet seen, as support. But its most striking characteristic was the light, interlaced in the soil of the mound like the veins of spider-webbed glass branching and twisting, forming patterns before giving over to chaos and falling back into patterns again, was the same white light that had come from the winged worms that had been guiding them into this place. And it was, it was awe-inspiring. But it was not the main event. On the far side of the chamber from where Maxine had entered, past the trail of worms and their three-story hive, she assumed they owned it, and beyond the crystals that were breaking up and scattering the white light in a million possible directions, what both she and her imaginary badger friend found themselves staring at, though with very different reactions, was the one thing in the universe that Maxine was the most predisposed to recognize immediately. A spaceship. This has been Maxine and the Planets Unknown by Brad Lawrence. Intro music, Bumbling by Pictures of the Floating World. Outro music, Children by the Creek by Chad Crouch. Thank you for listening.